The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Put a telescope into the hands of the child. He will admire the outside, especially if it is beautifully decorated. But its use for giving a more distinct view of distant objects is something he has no understanding of. Every episode, every week, we do this. We do the show called Revive Thoughts. We bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that that person delivered. Today we're gonna to be hearing a sermon from John Newton. He was preached in 1784 in London. Joel, we have covered John Newton on Revive Thoughts before, but it's been well over a year. Uh, you may have forgotten some of the details of his life. So we're gonna go back over a little bit of them um, and we're also gonna add some new details, kind of focus a little bit more on how he got involved in ending the slave trade. Uh, but we highly suggest going back and listening to that other episode, if you have not, because we cover the sermon that preceded the launch of the very famous hymn, Amazing Grace. So if you don't know that, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. He actually he preached a sermon right before it came out and that sermon and the song tie in very well together and so it is worth your time to go check it out definitely definitely amazing grace i think is pretty objectively the most famous hymn in the entire world i i would agree with that i, I, feel I yeah not only i mean i feel like the vast majority of the secular world know at least the mm -hmm. chorus and maybe the first verse to amazing grace just because it is so common it is so prevalent in in the entire it's just permeated yeah. everywhere i say it uh in the episode but i'll say it again and maybe remember it if you listen to it but when i was in china which is a secular country not pro-christian i remember working out at the gym and in the middle of chinese pop songs for no reason that i know of <laughs> amazing grace played and it's it sounded great universal and, I think, and i just was like even here in the middle of a place that's like not exactly pro-christian on any level you're having amazing grace play while you're working out it's just that famous yeah. of a song it transcends cultures and governments yeah yeah. Uh, John Newton has got a crazy life. It is absolutely insane. And it all leads him to, uh, I mean, uh, becoming, again, an, an incredible poet, an incredible pastor, an incredible songwriter. He was born in 1725. And at a young age, he was sailing with some friends to Europe when he was kind of pressured in by the Navy to enter the service. Yeah, back of, in those days like when they recruited. needed more people, they just basically pulled you off a boat and said you're right, a soldier. Right, now. half half is an involuntary, or a voluntary draft, I guess, is yeah, <laughs> kind exactly. of the polite way to say it. He attempted to hatch a plot to, to kill the captain and take control. This is all pre-believer, obviously. He, he was trying to take over the ship, but he got caught, and he got punished, and in front of 350 sailors, he was publicly beaten and humiliated. And so he would continue on reluctantly serving in the Royal Navy. And eventually, he'd make his way into the slave trade, working on boats. People needed experienced sailors, and it worked out uh, that the slave trade was booming. And so he began working on boats in the slave trade. And while working on these boats, he was actually at one point abandoned by his crew and left at a town in Africa where he became a slave himself for three years. Once his father found out where he was, he sent a team of 
mercenaries to go and rescue him. And the mercenaries went there, got him back on the boat, and as they were traveling back, the ship came across a huge storm in the middle of the sea next to Ireland. And storms have a kind of a neat role in a lot of the men of God throughout history. We see in John Gill's life, we see B.B. Warfield, we see most famously probably Martin Luther becoming a Christian during a storm. Same story here, John Newton in the midst of this storm of thinking he's gonna die, dedicates his life to the Lord. He eventually decided he wanted nothing to do with the slave trade, but it, this was not an immediate, like instantaneous, he became a Christian and realized what he was doing was evil. It took years. And during that time, he was actually the captain of some of these ships for a while before he gave it up. And I always wonder what was going through his mind running slave ships. He himself had actually been a slave. He himself had been forced. He knew what it was like to be a slave in Africa, and he knew what it was like to be forced into doing something when he was forced into the Navy. And did he just turn a blind eye and just kind of think to himself, hey, it happened to me. You know, this is just how life is. Or was it just this kind of, I wish I could stop it. There's nothing I can do. Or this is how I put food on the table. I wonder what justifications he used in his mind to kind of allow himself to do it for as long as he did. I feel like in some way it's just, it's just a broken mind. You just have a, yeah. a, a, a flawed view of the world. This is what everyone else is doing. Right. It's, I, it's hard to have yeah. a, a fresh perspective on it, especially if that's all you've ever known. Exactly. But eventually he does leave. He takes kind of a day job. He starts running Bible study, studies. And, and over time, he makes his way into ministry and becomes an ordained minister. Yeah, he spends time, a long time actually, preaching at a small town in England, a famous hymn writer, William Cowper, moved out there, and the two of them worked on a hymn book together. And this this is the hymn book that Amazing Grace would eventually be published in. Another side note that is kind of interesting that we saw in our research was when the American Revolution sparked off, right? You have the, the shot that was heard around the world, news of, of fighting and revolution in the colonies. When, when that reached England, Newton's whole church came together and prayed at 5 a.m. in the morning. They, they all got out of bed, and this news was, was concerning to them, so they got together and had kind of a praise and worship and a prayer session to talk about what was happening in the colonies across the Atlantic Ocean. It's just kind of an interesting thought. Like You don't oftentimes think about what churches in England were doing during the American Revolution. It's yeah. kind of it's kind of neat to see that whether whether for ill or for best or whatever it may be, um, at least John's Newton Church was concerned about. I don't know how much details they had, but it was enough to get them to have a midnight prayer session. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he also had a surprising link to two other very famous people in the 1700s that somehow we missed this in our first episode. Uh, both Whitfield, George Whitfield, that is, and John Wesley. Uh, have been the center of their own episodes with us. We talked about the great rift that happened to them in a really good episode, if you haven't listened to it, where George Whitfield died and John Wesley preaches his funeral sermon. And we just kind of go through how uh, these two guys, one's a Calvinist, George Whitfield, one's a, you know, an Arminian, John Wesley, and they have this big kind of almost violent split that happens between them. And we didn't mention it in the episode, but it's important to note that that splits like that between the churches could be violent and dangerous, and especially in Europe. If you've listened to the show at all, you you can think and think back at points where, yeah, that church breaking off caused some violence later on. Um, the Arminian and Calvinist climate really did kind of almost get to that point. I don't know if it could have, but to be fair, they were also both breaking away from the Church of England a little bit. And the Church of England actually did send men to beat up John Wesley, and he did get beaten at one point. So again, there's actual violence occurring during this time too. Newton 
got mentored and in close contact with both of these guys when he attended some of their meetings in the 1750s. And when he came back to London, eventually he was invited in. They said, you're such a great preacher out there. Come on into London where you can do some more. Uh, People flocked from all over to hear him. He tended to lean more Calvinist, but he was really great at bringing the different sides together. And he really brought them on this goal. It was like, no matter where you're at theologically, we have something we can do together. And that is work towards abolition. You know, John Wesley would end up seeing, you know, a lot of John Newton's career. He ended up dying in 1791, and John Wesley famously wrote to Newton. He said, you have a unique gift for bridging this divide, especially between these these two different evangelical camps that had formed after the Great Awakening. He seemed to pick up the mantle and the burden, I think, that Wesley and Whitfield had for souls, and he turned it towards doing something really good that could show the love of Christ to many, and that was ending the slave trade. Abolition had been around for some time, but a committee was formed to decide how best to get rid of it. One thing they were particularly looking for was personal testimony, and uh, they were having trouble getting it. Not, not many people wanted wanted to stand up and testify that they were essentially slave traders. John Newton did, and this was a very risky move at the time. You know, this man was, he was a a famous book writer. He was a pastor. He was a well-known hymn writer. Uh, He had a lot of respect around, especially with people, you know, they they didn't necessarily know his past. They didn't Mm -hmm. know where he came from. And we think about today, in today's day and age, you know, that I'm going to do air quotes in our cancel culture to where (laughs) the public perception can make or break a person. You know, if the public turns against you, then you're done for. And that was a a serious concern for the people around John Newton. They thought the public would turn on him and crucify him. And he didn't care. He wanted to make because because he thought there's a chance that what I'm saying and the imagery and the the passion that I could give a cause like this would be more beneficial. And so he became a huge advocate talking about the slave trade, shedding a light on the bad practices that happened, and even admitting that for some time he was also involved in the slave trade, even as a Christian before he got out of it. He was very open about his own failings and regrets in that area. And it it worked. It made a huge impact on the public. He was responsible for helping get a diagram just of how small the ships were so you could see how tightly packed these slaves were packed into these ships. And in in a lot of ways, it opened the gates for a lot of other people to come forward, a lot of other testimonials to share the horrors of what trading slaves was like. All of these things that he wrote Um, and worked with helped to influence the end of the slave trade. But he had another, in my opinion, maybe even more lasting impact that he probably didn't even know he was making until it started to show fruit. When he was out at the middle of nowhere church, preaching for years, there was this young teen who would visit him and his church a lot. His aunt and uncle lived in the town and, and they were the legal guardians of this young man. He heard Newton's testimony, the offals of the slave trade, all those things, probably long before the world had a clue who this guy was. And definitely, I think before he was the world famous pastor and theologian and hymn writer. This young teenager uh, did not accept Christ until 26 years old, but he did get elected to parliament. And when he who is William Wilberforce, came to Christ, Newton confirmed it. At this point, Newton was in London with him and kind of mentored him. He, and if you don't know, William Wilberforce is very important to the story of getting rid of the slave trade. Um, And William Wilberforce asked if he should stay in parliament. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm with these politicians. Should I keep going down this road now that I'm a Christian? And Newton encouraged him. He said, you can do a lot of good there if you stand strong for Christ. 
Three years later, at the age of 29, he introduced legislation to abolish the slave trade. But a month before he did, John Newton had dropped a best-selling pamphlet on that subject. These two guys kind of team up, as you'll see. Yeah, the two of them really worked together on, on a lot of things. Later, Wilberforce presents the vote to end slave trade again, and Newton spends two years hammering sermons on the subject, trying to sway public opinion. Another committee is formed, this time by Parliament, to investigate the slave trade, and William gets Newton to get up in public in the court and give testimony and testify about how unlawful it is, how how evil trading of human lives is, and how essentially the government is sponsoring it. And he covered things like how, how many people die in transit, how bad the conditions are, how awful it smelled, and it made people sick. Most people at home in England, they didn't own slaves. They had no idea how bad all of this was going on with the the trading with the colonies. William and Newton are at the tip of the spear, but they're also fighting big businesses because Newton, you know, he's sending these pamphlets with Wilberforce's help to people in government. But some of these people in Parliament own some of these ships that these businesses taking place on. So, so they're calling on these businessmen essentially to sacrifice their business for the sake of what is right, right? You gotta give up your well-being for doing the right thing. Because I just don't know anything quite like what these two guys were doing, where everyone was kind of in on it, and they all had to take a loss together, but these two people were just determined to convince them. This battle lasted a long time, 15 years later, in 1807, three months before Newton died, uh, they, they find out that the law passes, slaves will no longer be shipped. And a month after Wilberforce dies, so he doesn't ever get to hear it, but he probably knew it was coming down the pipe. Uh, slaves are freed officially in the British Empire in 1833. So many people, including Newton, um, just accepted slavery as a part of the norm at that time. And it took decades to make people see the evil that was it was a part of. And at the same time, I just love this image in my mind of Newton preaching and spending time with young William back at that parish in the middle of nowhere. You know, I wondered if they remembered those early days of their friendship later on when they were battling it out together in Parliament. Um, only God could have foreseen that such a young boy and that a former slave trader would end up doing what they did together. They truly changed the world. But in this sermon, preached from that pulpit in London, it could have been one of those sermons that young William Wilberforce first started listening to when he was becoming a Christian. It was that era, after all. We hear about the God who doesn't just shake the earth, he shakes the heavens and the earth. The fulfillment of Haggai 2 by the Lord Jesus Christ. Haggai 2, 6 and 7. For so says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. God shook the earth when he proclaimed his law to Israel from Sinai. The description of this event presents to our minds a scene of unspeakable, majestic, and grand, but um, also a scene unspeakably awful. 
The mountain was in flames at the top and trembled to its base. Dark clouds, thunder, and lightning filled the air. Not only the mountain, but the hearts of the people, of the whole people, trembled. And Moses himself said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Then the apostle, referring to this passage, observes in Hebrews 12, 26, the voice of the Lord shook the earth, but the prophet speaks of another, a greater sound. Yet once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. If we really believe that the scriptures are true and that the prophecies were delivered by holy men who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, then how serious should we be to correctly understand passages and events? For we must be properly affected by them. But oh, how does experience and observation confirm the poet's words? Men are just children of a larger size. Put a telescope into the hands of the child, he will admire the outside, especially if it is beautifully decorated. But its use for giving a more distinct view of distant objects is something he has no understanding of. The music of the Messiah is but a decoration of the words which should have a sense and meaning of great importance. No music can explain this sense and meaning. When rightly understood, it will have an effect which no music can produce. The music of the Messiah has a great and wonderful effect in its own kind. The ancients, to describe the power of the music of Orpheus, pretended that when he played upon his harp, the wild beasts, such as lions and tigers, would gather around him to listen and seem to forget their natural fierceness. Such expressions are doubtlessly exaggerated or perhaps figurative, to communicate how he succeeded in civilizing men of fierce and savage dispositions. But even if we allow the account to be true in the literal sense, I would still suppose that the wild beasts were only affected by his music while they heard it, and that it did not actually change their nature and render them tame and gentle as sheep from that time forward. In the same way, I can allow that those who hear the Messiah might be struck and impressed during the performance, but when it was over, they retained the very same attitudes they had before it began. And many were no more affected by the ideas of this sublime declaration of the Lord's design to shake the heavens and the earth than if the same music had been set to words of a common ballad. Let us pray for the influence and teaching of the Holy Spirit so that we may understand the passage for the edification and comfort of our souls. The Jews on their return from the captivity met with many discouragements in their attempts to rebuild the temple, not only from the opposition and tricks of their enemies who managed for a time to compel them to quit their work, but also from the comparison some of the old men made between the magnificence of the first temple and the expectations surrounding the second one. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah were sent to encourage people with the promise that no matter how crude and poor the second temple might appear compared with the first, the glory of the second house would be a greater than that of the first. Had this depended upon abundance of silver and gold, the Lord could have provided it. But the glory spoken of 
was of a different kind and would be thoroughly verified by the personal appearance of the Messiah. His presence in the second temple would confer an honor and glory upon it, which would be far surpass the external pomp of the temple of Solomon. It brought with it greater consequences than when he appeared on Mount Sinai. Back then he shook only the earth, but under the second temple, he would shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land to introduce the Messiah who should fill the house with his glory. Let's think about three points. The character of the Messiah, the desire of all nations, the effects of his appearance, shaking the heavens and the earth, his filling the house with glory. First, the Messiah is called the desire of all nations because the rumor of the prophecy spread abroad. It had awakened the expectation and desires of many in different nations. They hoped that some great deliverer and friend of mankind was at hand. The sense of many prophecies of the Messiah, though misapplied, is remarkably expressed in a short poem by Virgil written a few years before our Savior's birth. It provides sufficient proof that the heathen had an idea of some great person who would soon appear. He would restore peace and prosperity and the blessings of their idea of a golden age to mankind. On this account, he was the desire of the nations. The need of all the nations of such a savior is sufficient to establish his right to this title, even though they had no knowledge of him. If a nation was in darkness of night and had no previous notion of light, light might still be said to be their desire because the light, whenever they should enjoy it, would put an end to their misfortune. It answers their wants and therefore accomplishes their desires. For if they could not directly wish for light, they would naturally wish, wish for relief. The heathens were miserably confused. They had desires for happiness, which could not be satisfied. They had fears and forebodings of conscience, but knew no remedy. They paid a blind devotion to idols because they were ignorant of the true God. When the Messiah came, he was a light for the Gentiles, just as he was the glory of Israel. Therefore, he came to bless the nations and turn their darkness into light, might justly be called their desire. What state was our nation at the time of his birth? How evil, how wretched, and what a change has his gospel brought? Second, this prophecy was, to some degree, fulfilled literally. At Christ's birth, a new star shone. At his death, the sun withdrew its shining. The earth quaked. The rock split and the dead arose. In his life, he often suspended and overruled the usual laws of nature. He exercised supreme power over the visible and invisible world. He shook the kingdoms of darkness and spoiled principalities and powers. He shook the kingdoms of the earth and their idols trembled and disappeared before his gospel. And eventually, the Roman Empire renounced paganism and embrace the Christian name. But the language of prophecy is also highly figurative. Mountains and trees, 
Land and water, sun and moon, heaven and earth, often signify nations, peoples, and states. And particularly heaven and earth are used to denote the religious and political establishment of Israel, or as we say, their constituent of the church and state. This, without a doubt, is the primary sense here. The appearance of the Messiah will be accompanied with the total dissolution of the Jewish system. The whole of their Levitical institution was fulfilled, superseded, and overturned by the Messiah. Before he died, he said, it is finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in half from the top to the bottom, and in a few years, the temple itself was destroyed, and therefore their former worship rendered utterly impractical. Their civil state was also dissolved. They were pulled from the promised land and sifted as with a sieve among all nations. Though in one view, they are preserved as a distinct people. In another, they are not a people having neither settlement nor government. They are living dispersed as strangers and foreigners among the nations. Nothing like this ever happened to any people. It is a striking, obvious, and perpetual proof of the truth of the scriptures. What was foretold by Moses and the succeeding prophets is fulfilled before our eyes. How unlikely it would be like this by natural means. Yet it must be this way because the mouth of the Lord has spoken and all that he has spoken is equally sure. He will yet again shake heaven and earth, dissolve nature and destroy all who reject his gospel. He will fill this house with his glory. When Jesus visited it, he displayed his glory. The blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. Children felt his power and sang, Hosanna to the son of David. And when the Pharisees rebuked him, he said, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. As the Lord in his own house, he purged the temple and drove out those who profaned it. And when he left it the last time with sovereign authority, he proclaimed that awful prophecy of destruction which was soon after executed, both upon the temple and the nation. His glory filled the temple when he was an infant, so that Simon and Anna then acknowledged his character. They spoke of him to those who were waiting for the consolation of Israel. His glory was especially manifested when he proclaimed himself the fountain of life and invited every thirsty, weary sinner to come to him to drink and live. The temple long ago being destroyed, but he still has a house, a house not made with hands. This house is his church, his people. He dwells in each individually. He dwells among them collectively in their societies and solemn assemblies. But before he takes possession of a heart, there is usually a shaking. He shakes the heavens and the earth. Their former views of God and of themselves are changed. All that they have been building in religion is shaken to the ground. Their vain hopes are shaken to the foundation. This makes way for the perception of his glory as a savior. In the day of his power, that heart is made willing to throw open his gates so that the king of glory may come in.
Early on in this sermon, he points out that people react to the words. He shakes the heavens and the earth and without even thinking about what it means, that sounds like nice words. He says, we say many words. We sing lots of nice songs. He was a songwriter. He know. And many times we'll sing words that are full of profundity. They're full of great thoughts. And we don't really even take any time to think about what we just read or said and what just, you know, what should have just gone past us. With this sermon, the phrase shakes the heaven and the earth. I hope that you were able to kind of listen to it and hear it maybe with fresh ears. Maybe hopefully the Holy Spirit was able to speak it to you and you were able to think about just what it means to serve a God who shakes the heavens and the earth. That's not just words, it's something he does. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. This sermon was edited by Ben Yost. Special thanks to Ben Yost. We really appreciate his help editing some of these sermons. Today's sermon was narrated by Tony Gavon. Tony has graduate degrees from Western Michigan University and Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. He earned his PhD in philosophy of science from Michigan State University and has been married to his wife, Verma, for 40 years and has five adult children. When he's not doing philosophy, he's spending time with his six grandchildren. He's also the co-host of the Cave to the Cross Apologetics podcast. You can find it by searching Cave for the Cross Apologetics in your podcast app of choice. We are once again going to ask you guys to go check out Revive Studios' latest show, Martyrs and Missionaries. If you have not gone and subscribed and started listening to them, we highly recommend that you do. If you enjoy Revive Studios shows like Revive Thoughts, Revive Radio, you will definitely enjoy Martyrs and Missionaries. It's a show that takes you through the stories of different martyrs, different missionaries, and sometimes both. And a lot of people tell us they love the backstories and the histories of the different people that we have on Revive Thoughts, but you have no idea how many people we have to skip because we can't find sermons by them. It drives me crazy. This show, Martyrs and Missionaries, allows us to give you another set of stories, 10 to 15 minutes long. Every Wednesday, it'll be coming out. It's hosted by Elise, which we have heard from several people that she is the best of the hosts so far on Revised Series. I think Nathaniel's pretty good, too, but uh, we'll see. I mean, I am partial to my wife, though, so there's that. Uh, but definitely go check it out if you enjoy what we're doing at Revised Studios. We also you know, encourage you to think about becoming a Patreon supporter. Joining us on the premium team feed gets you no more ads, gets you a personally signed bookmark, some stickers. It can get you uh, access to the Revive Thought deep dive episodes, which Joel and I are working on one. I am, it's a lot of research, but I'm in the process of working through a pretty good one that I think you guys will really like that should be out in the next couple months as well. Um, a lot of stuff with church history that really hasn't been touched by other people, and you want to help us out, we could really use the support, and we would really appreciate it if you joined us on Patreon. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.